time, I'm able to put colouring books in the football library because, David Hartrick, I looked at your catalogue and it includes three books where you offer two uh, behavioural therapy methods. So did you leap on the trend when you published those books or did you have those in the locker before the trend hit? It was before. My designer, Mick, had been working on one for a while and I said, yeah, let's go for it. And the... The original idea was to do the, the pundits one and then we went on and did the managers one and then it was my suggestion at the end to do the football and music crossover which we absolutely love doing. Yeah, I think I'll get that one. It's very difficult. What I may do is for the football library and you do get your card with Brian Glanville's face on it to allow you membership into the football library so you can go and um, dip into all those books that you used as research for your new title, Silver Linings. Um, but what I might, might do is blow up some A2 versions of all these uh, figures and I can just get visitors to colour them in. Perfect. And then the best version can go into the Andy Holt lounge. I've, again, too much time in lockdown. So in my head, it's kind of like a dream palace. Roy Keane's on the door. John Nicholson's at the front desk trying to convince you to burn your Sky subscription. And then you've got shelf upon shelf upon shelf of programmes, magazines, books, many books published by Ockley Books, more of which later. And then the coffee room uh, and the debating lounge is named after Andy Holt, um, the Accrington Stanley. I'm never sure if he's the owner or the chairman. He's the... I think, I think he's both, isn't both. he? Good. I will have to get him on. Uh, because I do want him to open in the Brian Glanville Football Library, the Andy Holt Lounge, where the three walls will have good morning and by the way. And this is a man, I was going to say he was one of the top five. I think he's now one of the top three because Dean Hoyle was one of my top three football owners, but he stepped aside. Obviously, I work with Huddersfield Town quite a lot. I, I'm, this is where I live and I do a lot of work for the lo- local paper and I'm Opta's guy at Huddersfield Town as well so yeah Mr Hoyle has stepped aside and Phil Hodgkinson has taken over for better and for worse it would be said they're one of the clubs that are really feeling the effects of lockdown and not having fans in yeah it's it's things aren't great down there at the moment it's quite understandable really with with they they are a club who needs the match day revenue more mm. than most so sunnier times ahead hopefully it is a superlative stage I'm trying to remember who I spoke to who had, I think it was Tom Whitworth, who spoke to the chap who designed what is now the John Smith, was the McAlpine. And yes, it's a yeah, lo- the architect. Yes, and it's a lovely stadium, and I was privileged to be there in 2012 when Watford came from behind to win 3-2 against Huddersfield. Playing for Watford that day, as far as I can remember, Johnny Hogg. I'm pleased that you're looking after him. Uh, he has the best assist of all time. Um, in in the Watford. That's the assist for the playoff goal. I take yes. it the Deeney. It's the header back to Deeney, isn't it? Yeah, he's uh, he's the absolute lifeblood, beating heart of that side down there. Funnily enough, the last piece I wrote, I've I've just done a, a week's cover for the local newspaper, and the last piece I wrote was a Jonathan Hogg appreciation post because he's won the uh, player of the season yes. down there for the first time in his Huddersfield Town career. He's always been sort of second or third. He's won it this year and his his 
stats are sort of off the charts this year. He's, he's attempted nearly 500 more passes than he did the year before and upped right. his pass success rate. And he's he just he's been brilliant this year, really has. Does he have a most popular pass? Is it the one back to the centre-halves or out to the wings? <laughs> well... They've had a tough time for a few seasons and there was an awful lot of Hoggy basically facing his own goal. But this season, Carlos Corran has come in and changed the way they play. So he's done an awful lot more of facing the opposition goal, um, something he's not done for about three years. And he loves a little sort of 20 to 25 yard pass out into uh, out into a wide area now, um, which is something we've not seen for a long time, a long time. But he's a, he's a really good football is I think because he is very very dogged and he, he he's very aggressive people forget he's actually a really really good footballer you know he's great on the ball he's, he's quite happy taking a man on and he's quite happy knocking the ball about really but no he's a, he's a really good player really really good player good. and Huddersfield he signed up for another two years and I think Huddersfield got him to sign a new contract last season and I, I would imagine he's probably going to see his career out at the club because he he got homesick at Watford, as you probably know. That's why he wanted to move back up north, and he still lives in Middlesbrough and commutes to Huddersfield. Oh, that's it! I didn't so know he's, that. He's a sort of. I think he's a person and a footballer who appreciates a sort of stable environment. You know, he likes knowing <laughs> he likes knowing how his week is set out, where he has to be at a certain time, etc. And yeah. I, I think he's very, very comfortable where he is, put it that way. Is he doing his badges? Uh, I don't think he's doing his badges yet, but I believe he plans to. Yeah. I believe he wants to. It's it's you see, information like that you always pick up second hand because he rarely does any media. I think over the, la- the course of the last season, he did one press conference, and that was when things were particularly bad down there. They were in a really, really bad run. Christopher Schindler, the club captain, had a long-term injury, so he wasn't in the club at the time. And uh, Hoggy sort of st- stood in as de facto captain, answered a few questions, straight batted them absolutely marvellous marvellously to be fair he's a bit of a Paul Scholes character you know you don't you don't get anything post-match off him and it's very very rare that the club put him forward for anything because usually he says no I'll steer clear of him it is I have spoken to a lot of um, men on the beat Neil Allen of Portsmouth uh, John Coleman um, and others who haven't won major awards. But I had a look at Huddersfield's squad. There are about 98 players. It's so bloated. Huddersfield, of course, had that horrible run, which included a 2-0 defeat at the Vic, where Huddersfield only won one game in 14, if you include the FA Cup game, uh, which really sank the club. Although, of course, you weren't going to sack the manager, who is who seems to be... And I, I, did you read that Coach's Voice interview with him? It, it completely opened my eyes to his style and his background, and I think he's a really good appointment. It's complicated. Go on. <laughs> if it was a Facebook status, it'd be complicated. I think this summer is huge as to where the club goes from here, because the squad was it was bloated but it was bloated in the wrong areas it was it was it was not only bloated it was completely imbalanced so there's 14 players that have gone or are going there's a couple more that we expect to leave on top of that for transfer fees and they've got a big recruitment job ahead so they've already got 
Jordan Rhodes back because they needed another striking option. Arguably, they need another one still. They've got Matty Pearson from Luton, who's a very good pickup in defence. They've got a goalkeeper coming this week, left back, right back. And they probably need four more as a minimum, maybe five. The problem with Carlos Corbran is he is very fixed in his style. So he wants to play football a certain way. And the problem was last season, where the wheels came off is they didn't have the players to do it. So the the early part of the season where they played well, they were sort of running on adrenaline and, and effort and trying. The second half of the season, when sort of other teams had got the cheat codes for them, uh, the wheels came off. But also he's, he's a disciple of Bielsa. Yes. So the other side of it was he was doing the double training sessions, the murder ball sessions, and he it's his first full season in management, so you have to remember that he was learning himself. And unfortunately, he ran most of the squad into the ground. And come January, the injury crisis was extraordinary. I mean, one game, I think they had 14 players missing by injury and first team players as well people like Josh Baroma who missed over half the season and still ended as top scorer the, the thing about Carlos Corbran is we, we honestly don't know because we've not seen him with a squad that suits his ambitions and we've not seen him be able to adapt and change shall we say a little bit more which he had to switch to a very pragmatic style just to get them over the line but what that sort of needs to happen next season is a little bit of adaption from team to team, really, and from game to game. So the jury's still a little bit out. The club are, are unanimously backing him and unanimously supporting him in every way they can. So we shall see, really. We shall see. I, I think I think it's quite exciting from a personal point of view because I have to work on the club and work with the club a little bit. And I'm actually a Brighton fan, at least it's it's interesting at the moment. You know, if if there was just another sort of boring old English manager in there, to be frank, it, it wouldn't be quite as exciting. There is at least a sense of it could go pretty well at some point. So, yeah, could be worse, really. Indeed. Uh, I'm just trying to remember who won League One. Peterborough have come up. Yes. What always happens is the team who are 21st have to be better than the three teams coming up. I think Blackpool have got a scarily good manager in Neil Critchley. A lot of the teams have got parachute money um, still that they're working through in that division. But it's a fascinating division. I'm glad Watford are out because if we hadn't, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Uh, although selling his Mila Sarr and Joao Pedro for 50 million quid would have helped. But it'll, yeah, it'll be sad not to go to Huddersfield. I think we, we did you home and away. Uh, the last season that Huddersfield were in the Premier League, which is where it all went wrong. Uh, and since then, it's been kind of disaster after yeah. crisis, after COVID, after murder ball. Um, but you d- Huddersfield deserves success. <laughs> wonderful city or town. Wonderful Town or city? Town. town? Town. Town. Largest town in the country that's not classed as a city. Ah, grand. And uh, yeah, I was impressed by the train station. It's very northern, uh, proper West Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, and, and so I wish you well. But... Um, you're a Brighton fan. Rich Foster is famously a Crystal Palace fan. How does that relationship work, given that you publish his books? Uh, we never, ever discuss football. <laughs> <laughs> we, no, we, we get on, but we never, we rarely go into that area because he is a very passionate Crystal Palace fan and I am an extraordinarily passionate 
Brighton fan. And uh, it's quite funny, really, because I think some people don't realise how toxic that rivalry is. And it, it, it really is bad. I think the thing about Palace is that we can never finish above them in the league. It's like they've got an absolute hex on us. But what's interesting at the moment is that we feel like the progressive club and we, it feels far more fun being a Brighton fan than it does being a Palace fan. At the moment, being in the same league and it being the Premier League and it being quite high profile, uh, there's a, there is a real toxicity to it. And I mean, I've been to Brighton Palace games and they are as nasty as uh, United versus Liverpool games I've been to, Leeds United versus Man United games I've been to. It's, it's every bit as, as bad. We rarely talk about that specific area and if there's a, a Brighton v Palace game coming up we will often not speak to each other the week before or the week after which is very interesting because as you may know Kieran Maguire and Kevin Day have to talk to each other uh, the week of the uh, Palace Brighton games they're the team who do the price of football which is a wonderful show you also publish books by Steve Hill I've had Steve on that must have been a joy to read his books uh, you are, by the way, the MD of Ockley Books, yeah. uh, one of the best of the publishing houses. But Steve came across really well, um, although I did worry for his sanity where he was staying up or laying in the bath for hours watching darts. <laughs> yeah, um, Steve, Steve came to me with the idea for the card originally and I absolutely loved it. And the one thing I said to him, I mean, we're a sports book publisher, but the one thing I said to him is this, this, the more football you include in this book, the less interesting it is, because really this is a book about the journey and your slow mental collapse over the course of a season. So we did the card, which is, is basically, for those who haven't read it, it's Steve following Chester home and away for a, a complete season. And he lives in London, so it's no small matter either and we did really really well got nominated it was on the long list for the William Hill um, and he came to me with another idea and after putting himself through it for the card I thought this will be a really easy one and he decided he was going to spend a year watching as much sport as he possibly could and again it, it's, it just became the diary of a man coming close to mental collapse at times. He's a brilliant bloke to spend any length of time with. It's an absolute joy to, to work with him. He's very, very funny. He's very, very dry. But yeah, there have been several conversations between us where I've, I've rung him at lunchtime about something and he's just rolling out of bed because he was up till four o'clock watching... You know, kabaddi, live kabaddi, powerboat racing, or snooker from some godforsaken place. So, but yeah, Wall of Sport is the, is his latest, and it's it really is a very funny read. Yeah, um, and of course, you can talk about Chester City with him or Chester FC. Well, both of them, I suppose. Uh, oh, yeah. Although, isn't it? I always say, by yeah. by the grace of Gino Pozzo, go Watford. By the grace of Tony Bloom go Brighton, because anyone could be Berry, Bolton, Chester, Charlton, Middlesbrough in the 1980s, Workington, and on and on and on, Darlington. I am so pleased that Brighton have sorted themselves out. Um, this Premier League money means that you can afford uh, the likes of Neil Mope, who was named in The Guardian this week. We're talking on the 25th of May, uh, the anniversary of Dominic Cummings' press conference, um, where he said he was testing his eyesight. Um, one of the flops was Neil Mope. 
saying that he doesn't convert his chances. Do you agree with this? I think it's impossible not to. I think what's frustrating as a Brighton fan at the moment is we are so good. This is right. Well, to strip it right back, the thing is, and I, I've said this, I, I said this on another podcast. I find it incredibly difficult to sit here and moan about us at the moment because uh, my 18th and 19th birthdays, respectively, we were. 91st out of 92 league clubs and we've spent I think in 119 years we've spent 80 of them in the lower two leagues of of English football so it seems really churlish to be annoyed that you haven't scored enough goals in a season in which you've stayed in the Premier League but the thing is we were Ollie Watkins away from realistically having 12 to 15 more points this season and that would have been an absolutely brilliant season. It would have been, I would argue, the greatest season in Brighton's history. Yeah, but he was because... always going to go to Villa because of the Dean Smith connection. Oh yeah, I, it, it's. I'm just using. I'm just using Watkins as an example. Oh, okay, I see what um, you mean. Yeah. We were we were that that level of striker away from having a really really good season. But the thing about Mope is that whatever opinion you have of Neil Mope. He is a real sort of worker and there is a place for that up front. But the problem is we have, you then get Danny Welbeck coming in on a free and he does everything Neil Mope does, but he also scores. And you think, oh, right, okay, yeah, that's the next level, really. That's the next level. And Danny Welbeck's not an absolute world beater, but he's been brilliant for us since he's come in. And if we can just get a striker over the summer, I have a feeling that the Basuma money, when it eventually comes, will pretty much all be spent in trying to get a striker, possibly even two in. Um, and then I, th- I think we really could kick on. But there is, of course, the loom inspector of... of Potter potentially going to Spurs, but it does feel like they're looking elsewhere, thankfully. I think um, Potter should be given the chance to build something at Brighton because he stayed in Sweden for a long time. I think Arsenal would be an equally good appointment if they dispense with Arteta. But like Sean Dyche at Burnley, who's been there for years, like Eddie Howe before it all went wrong... Potter's the best man for that club. There are no issues at all with any players. You've got some great lads in Lewis Duncan, Solly March and Aaron Connolly. The goalkeeper situation seems to have been resolved. Is Matty Ryan going to leave the club now? I would have thought so. I mean, Robert Sanchez's rise is just incredible. I I think if people don't know, Robert Sanchez got... He was put into the Euro 2020 squad for Spain yesterday. So he's their, their third goalkeeper. If people want some perspective this time last year he was just finishing a so-so loan at Rochdale and coming back to Brighton's fifth choice keeper so that's quite a that's quite a rise in 12 months to say the least and he he's been absolutely brilliant for us but I, I think going back to Potter the thing is we all absolutely love him and we're petrified of losing him because there was a lot of when Hewton went there was a lot of sort of um slightly raised eyebrows my personal take on it was that he'd been brilliant but he had definitely taken us as far as it was possible for him to take us and then Boss came in and I mean the, some of the football we play is is outstanding and it, it's I mean as I said it may not be people's 
favourite of all time and you may have fa- uh, players that you sort of revere and love more, but by whatever metric you want to use, really, this is the greatest ever Brighton squad, first eleven. And, and time in our history so it, it does seem churlish to sort of moan about things but that's life in the Premier League there's always something you can have a little whinge at and yeah this season we should have scored more goals but I just hope we address that over the summer and next season we finish where we should have finished this season yeah. really which is sort of 10 to 12 Well I will wish you luck and I'll, I've got an open invitation because my friend Ben Miller is an enormous Brighton fan and season ticket holder but he works uh, for a place that demands weekend shifts. So he said, yeah, if you want to come to the Watford game, you can take my ticket. And I've already sat through Brighton-Watford one year. This was the goal with by Pascal Gross. It was 1-0. Um, not a yeah. wonderful game, but a lovely trip down. And Brighton is one of my favourite cities to go to. It's wonderful. Would you say that the Brighton of Graham Potter are one of the 50 teams that matter? Were you to update your 2012 book? <laughs> Written amongst um, diaper changes and sleepless nights because you just had your daughter. Um, so apart from that Brighton team, are there any additions that you would make? It's strange looking back at that book because I think like any writer, you look back at your first book and you realise how far you've come. And you're not, I'm not embarrassed of it, but you sort of look back and think, oh, I'd love to, if I could go back in time. I would change so much of it. But I think when I was doing that book and when I was choosing the teams, there are certain teams that you have to put in there and certain teams that I wanted to put in there. So since I wrote it, I think realistically there are a couple, the, the sort of the Premier League Manchester City and how they have changed the landscape in the Premier League because how, whatever you think of the owners and the money coming in and how they've done it, they have revolutionised the, the landscape in the, the Premier League. There is no denying that. So they would definitely have to be in there. And yeah, I think I might I might try and dig up a couple of other stories if I was to update it. Um, but my main update would just be to go through it and give it a damn good edit and take out all the stuff I wish wasn't in. Kill the darlings. If I'm honest. Kill them. But... Yeah. The other team that comes to mind would be because when I wrote when I wrote that book, not every team is in there because of uh, you know success or triumph. But I think I would probably have to put Rangers in there because of all the you know whether you still believe it's Rangers or not. I'm not even going to get into all of that sort of thing because it's just a massive bag of wasps. But uh, coming back like they have and then winning the league this season is is I think quite an extraordinary story, really. And I think I had no idea if Stephen Gerrard was going to be a good manager. But I think it's pretty undeniable. Roy Hodgson, Rafa Benitez, Gerard Houllier, three of the Jurgen Klopp. He worked with four of the best coaches in the world of the last fifty years. Of course, he's gonna, and of course, Sven, whom we should not forget. Um, what about the fact that Manchester City uh, are this week? They're celebrating their Nicky Weaver final, the promotion from the third tier back in nineteen ninety nine. It's a it's a different club, and I like to say the Tottenham of the Levy Lewis. Uh, Enoch era is not the same from the Tottenham I grew up with, which I call the Goran Bonjevcevic years. Um, and the Brighton who played in Gillingham and elsewhere are not the same as Tony Bloom's Brighton. So it's the same entity, but with a different drink poured into the shell. Yes, new co-rangers uh, is a new entity, but they play in blue, they play at Ibrox, uh, they're big at the Govan shipyards. 
And it is the same team. So very interesting, Stephen Gerrard's Rangers being there. They're in the Champions League next season. Uh, and we hope that uh, they can do well. I completely forgot to mention uh, Huddersfield. You're coming up to celebrating the centenary of the Herbert Chapman era. I've spoken to Paddy Barkley about his work on Chapman. Are the club planning um, some centenary celebrations this decade? Yes, I believe they are. They've they've got one or two things lined up. I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything, but I think they they uh, yes, put it this way. They they are going to market, and that that club is one that is very aware of its history. It's a bit like Brighton was in it in before they got promoted to the Premier League, and then they now we've stayed in there. Like you say, it is slowly becoming a very different entity. A town are still the same as they've ever been, really. And, yeah, you know, the fans still sing about winning the league three times in a row. And it, it's also sort of tinged with slight sadness because Chapman went because they didn't give him what he wanted, really. And he found a club who would. So when he went down to, to Arsenal, you know, they basically turned the whole club over to him and said, do whatever you want, be it changes to the stadium. Uh, you know, Chapman down at, at town, he he started the process and he never got to finish it. So, for instance, he was the one who built, he, he built a press box because he realised he wanted some good coverage from the press. And the way to do it was to keep them dry, keep them happy and give them a warm drink. So it was, he, he was a genius, Herbert Chapman. He really was um, a, just an utter, complete genius. And yeah, things could have been different, but they've had a couple of nearly moments, Huddersfield Town with, you know, the likes of Shankly and Dennis Law and what have you. Uh, but their time will come. I truly believe that in football, everybody's time comes sooner or later. And it's thanks to Dean Hoyle's investment and extreme fandom that drove him into the boardroom. And who was it? Was it Rob Stewart was telling me about his book about Huddersfield um, players and how Dean wrote the forward because uh, it brought back such strong emotions as a fan. And, and of course, Watford have their own celebrity fan. And uh, Elton often, he was in the dressing room at the last game of the season, giving out the awards. And he was there with his kids. Um, but he's been known to have a direct line to the manager do you think Dean Hoyle has a direct line or is he just abnegating everything to Phil Hodgkinson now? Interesting question. Dean Hoyle still owns 25% of the club technically, but he was very, very ill for quite a long time. Um, really seriously life-threatening ill. And Phil came in and he is he gets a lot of stick from town fans because he's not Dean Hoyle, who was the bloke who saved the football club ultimately but also because he's perhaps not got as deep a pockets as Dean Hoyle maybe had, uh, but also because he's not as good in public as Dean was. Dean was really, really brilliant communication-wise. He would have lots of sort of fan clinics. He would have lots of Q&As, um, and he was really good on that respect, abnormally good. So now they've got a chairman who is just sort of normal. Uh, it actually feels worse so it's it's quite a difficult situation and I don't think Dean has much of a say if I'm brutally honest but I think he's still a presence in that club and it's I, I would hate to say you know because he's done so much for the club and ultimately saved him etc I, I would hate to say that ultimately it might be better if he sort of left 
left field to just get on with it on his own but it does feel a little bit like that it feels a little bit like the sort of Alex Ferguson David Moyes <laughs> dynamic do you remember when Ferguson was sat up in the stands watching as Moyes' Man United was sort of labouring to another one one and draw. the camera would always um, cut to Ferguson's face yeah it, it does feel like there's a little bit of that and one of the big chance at the club when fans are back in is there's only one Dean Hoyle mm. and when you're the sort of incumbent chairman uh, Dean will be potentially in his box in the middle of uh, stand again as usual I don't know it's a funny dynamic isn't it it's a funny dynamic mm. and I, I the club has changed had to change a lot it's been very badly affected by Covid so but what they have done uh, that I think is admirable but that doesn't go down well with fans is that they have taken the route of we're going to strip back and just try to survive through COVID rather than just carrying on regardless and doing a reading and having a wage bill that's 211% a turnover and various others. And it's, it's not sexy. It's not exciting. But they've tried to sort of govern the club and come out of COVID with as little debt as possible. And they, there is a world where in a couple of years that pays off quite well for them, potentially, I would have thought. I hope so too. It is a long game. Next season may be tough. Um, but we'll mm. see. And as we talked about, the manager might be under pressure very quickly. Uh, but with Johnny Hogg there as a, a calm head, commuting in, <laughs> commuting down... Coming down to, although he lives in Yorkshire, Middlesbrough is the very top of Yorkshire. It's like the what Watford yeah. is to London, Middlesbrough is to Yorkshire. You're not sure if it's Yorkshire or Teesside. <laughs> um, regardless, uh, has Bo got your obsession for football? Yes and no. <laughs> she loves football things, so she's constantly wearing a Brighton shirt. Good. In winter, she's got her Brighton scarf on, but she's less interested in actual football. But she's 10 years old, and I kind of get that because, you know, attention span and everything. But I'm quite interested to see how the Euros plays out because she got quite into 2018, the World Cup, and everyone talking about it because England were involved. I'm quite interested to see if she, if this is a little bit of a moment for her this summer. We, we'll, we'll see. She likes Harry Kane. That's her favourite player. So if Harry Kane has a good tournament, I suspect she might be a little bit more drawn into the actual game itself. I've really been enjoying what Henry Winter's been saying the last few months. He's basically shaking Gareth Southgate and said, please attack, give us something to cheer. The government at this, the England team really boost morale. And um, we hope that good things will happen. England have got three games. They're all tough games. And if Gareth Southgate uh, wins none of them, uh, then we'll have to have plan B. And then Graham Potter will become England manager and we'll all live happily ever after. Your... Oh, don't. <laughs> Anything can happen. Sam Allardyce is out of a job. Your parents, you say, uh, bought you all kinds of football paraphernalia as a kid. So did you grow up in the shadow of uh, 86, that World Cup? 86 was the first World Cup I can physically remember. I was a sort of passing fan of football, but I enjoyed playing it more than anything else. But 86, I can remember sitting down and it was a funny World Cup because of the kickoff times. So there was a lot of, we'd, we'd not long had a video recorder. And yeah. there was a lot of watching videoed highlights and 
The thing about Mexico 86 is that I think it gets lost in the bright lights of Italia 90 a bit. Mexico 86 was a brilliant World Cup, absolutely brilliant World Cup. You only have to look at the sort of top. There's a YouTube video that I think is called The Golden Goals of Mexico 86. And all it is is the BBC's goal of the tournament um, montage. But there were so many good ones, there's 20. So it's not your normal six, there's 20. And there was, it's just a brilliant, brilliant tournament. And it was really after Mexico 86 that I then, it was, became somewhat of an obsession. Firstly, via Roy the Rovers, which is, has sort of been a lifetime passion, really. Have you, you must listen and to my chat with Barry, Barry Tomlinson, who was Roy's agent. I have, I have listened to it. Oh, I have listened to it. Barry is, is sort of one of, he is, he is on the Roy the Rovers Mount Rushmore. <laughs> he really is. Uh, me and a friend had a chance to meet him at an event that was due to uh, take place, not last year, the year before, at the National Football Museum, but unfortunately it got cancelled and we were we were absolutely gutted. From Roy the Rovers, that was sort of a gateway drug into shoot and match and collecting stickers and everything else that went along with it, really. And I've uh, the, the collecting bug is something that has has stayed with me. Um, it's absolutely lethal for me to pick up a sticker album, as the wife will tell you. Oh no, because so, it's a free. It's like razors and razor blades. The books are free. The stickers are a small yes. GDP of an island. Yeah. So I, I literally completed the Euro twenty twenty one yesterday. Mazel I got my last couple in yesterday. <laughs> Who was your last um, one? Uh, it was a Ukrainian... One of the things that I looked at for a book that I wrote that I'm not here to talk about, which is available on Amazon, is the vicarious thrill of everything surrounding football. And I might work that into yeah. book two. Because um, refereeing is obviously the best one. Witness Mike Dean, or rather don't witness Mike Dean. But everything else... Um, all the other aspects, coin collecting, SO90. I was too young, and also it was in America, but I remember Footix... I had a notebook with Footix on yep. the cover, the mascot. Euro 96 was my first tournament. I was far too young for Italia 90. Uh, and if I watched it, if I watched, if I could go back in time and see where I was when England and West Germany played for the semi-final, I bet I was there, but I was probably playing with Lego or Duplo. Yeah. But that tournament 1990 uh, is one of the focuses of your book, which we will talk about after the break. Uh, this is Silver Linings. Uh, but beforehand, I, I feel big shame that I haven't read from the back page to the front room, which is a book by yourself and Roger. You'd better pronounce his surname because I'll get it wrong. Dognagetti. Yeah. Um, it was. I was just the editor. It's all. It's all Roger's work. But it is a. It's a stunning book. <laughs> it really is. It's a, it's a look at football's relationship with the media through history. And it's quite incredible the journey it's taken. I, I, don't, I don't know if people know that there was, there was a, a world where for a long time an England game might get a single sentence in a newspaper. That was for a surprisingly long time. But it goes into um, how the media... Uh, have reacted to certain things, various controversies, how it's changed in the modern era with social media. And I think anybody who reads that book is going to be shocked at basically how cyclical the nature of football's problems with the media are. Because a lot of the things that we still have issues with today were issues right back at inception. Trust me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a it's a fascinating book. I was 
editing that book was I, I have edited quite a few books obviously running Ockley and I've done a few others as well um, non-football stuff there are certain books where it's just a joy and from the back page to the front room really was a joy because I kept having to remind myself to edit it because I was just reading it you know just really enjoying it as a reader what a wonderful Um, recommendation now it is on the shelves of the football library a burgeoning section of books written about football criticism there's a brian clough book where the it just just talks about cloughy's um role in the media when he switched over to the other side and was a commentator and a broadcaster I wonder this summer what the story's going to be because BBC Sport for the last year, I call it, they're on the right side of history. Every time any player gets abused, bang, BBC Sport report it because if they don't, people will say, why aren't you reporting this? And it's every time and it's good that they're doing it, but it is a bit much. Meanwhile, the newspapers cannot pin the blame this summer on Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood. They can't pin it on Foden because he's the golden boy. So I'm very worried for Gareth Southgate, our waist-kitted friend, because it will be his fault. Or will it be the FA's fault? Or will it be the Big Six's fault? Who do you reckon is going to be at fault if England don't win this summer? I think it's probably going to be Southgate. I I have spoken on another podcast with a friend called Chris Lee about this. The great Chris Lee, we had him in. We had him in recently. I do worry slightly uh, for Southgate this summer because it feels like a hiding to nothing. Because we all know what a talented England generation it is, and there's a reason that England are sort of up amongst the favourites this time, probably deservedly. Um, You know, it's not to do with nationalistic betting this time. Watching how Southgate has put his England teams out over the last sort of six to 12 months, I slightly worry he's being affected by overthinking, which is the thing that tends to get all England managers. A lot hangs on the first game, really, because if, if England play well and they come away with a win, which is historically not what we do in tournaments, we always struggle in the first game, then I think it might set us up quite nicely. But I think if England struggle in that first game, I just worry with the pressure on the Scotland game that things might turn a little bit. We'll have to see. The the thing is, if you look at the route, England finishing not finishing top of that group would actually do us a hell of a lot of good. Yes, it, <laughs> it would. Puts us on a, You've noticed a this as well because draw. it's yeah, it's unbelievable that we get. I've got the wall chart here. Obviously, uh, if we win the group, we play the second place in Group F, uh, which could be Germany or Portugal. Uh, and if we come second in the group, we play the second in Group E, which if Spain don't have a shocker, it will be Robert Lewandowski. Or it might be Sweden. But yes, you're absolutely right. That's just to underline uh, the permutations. Uh, This goes out on June 7th. The tournament starts at the end of the week. Uh, I've spoken to Andy Bollin, uh, who is a Scot. And I think just to burst our bubble a bit and give us something to work towards. And it would give the media something to talk about if Scotland did win. If they did beat England, because goodness, Scotland need uh, something to boost them at the moment. I can't, I can't get on board with that. That's the one game I think we have to win. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you see, I'm a child of, I'm a child of the '80s. I'm a child of the home internationals and the Rouse Cup. Of I, I, I want to beat Scotland at every opportunity, if I'm honest. 